Chapter 3 of Mystery of the Ambush in India by Andy Adams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London Chapter 3 The Raja's Ruby By the time the basket carriers had turned a few corners, Biff was not so sure that he would rejoin his companions as soon as he expected. The lazily moving pair suddenly stepped up their pace, and the narrow, poorly paved streets looked so much alike that Biff had no idea where they were leading him. The streets were flanked by chawls of native houses that were scarcely more than hovels. From the suspicious glances that Biff received, and from the way the buildings encroached upon the narrow alleys, he felt as though a whole sea of humanity was closing in upon him. He realised that he would need a compass to find his way back. There was no telling by the sun which was out of sight even over the low roofs, although the day was becoming so hot that Biff wished he were back in a rickshaw instead of footing it through these dismal, dirty streets. Then they reached a better section, where the buildings were higher, with occasional shop fronts. There the basket-bearers slackened the pace and turned into a passage beneath an archway that bore the sign D. Chand and Brothers, Import-Export Warehouse. Biff followed cautiously and saw the two men cross a little courtyard and continue through another archway well beyond. There they disappeared from view, but only long enough to set down the basket, because one of them returned to the inner arch and closed a big metal gate behind him. He then went to rejoin his companion. By then, Biff was moving into the courtyard himself. He edged over to inside and gained a look through the inner arch. Beyond the closed gate, he saw what appeared to be a large storeroom, for there were many crates, boxes and other bulky objects stacked there. From his angle, Biff could see nothing of the two men, so he moved cautiously towards the inner arch, hoping to get a closer and more direct view. At that moment, a clang sounded behind him, and Biff turned to see that another gate had closed in the outer arch. A tall man in baggy white clothes had stepped in from the street and was now locking the gate behind him. Biff was trapped in the open space between the archways. He looked quickly for an outlet, and saw one on the other side of the courtyard in the form of an open doorway. Biff hurried in that direction, only to stop short as a man appeared in the doorway to meet him with a polite, welcoming bow. The man was dressed in European clothes, but his broad, bland face, with thick smile and bushy eyebrows above the large, rimmed glasses, was definitely Asiatic. So was his cool, even-toned pronouncement. I am Diwan Chand. I have been expecting you. Come in. Then, as Biff hesitated, glancing back at the white-garbed Hindu, who was coming from the outer gate, Diwan Chand added a further introduction. This is Nathu, my special watchman. I thought it best to have him lock the gate, so we cannot be disturbed. He will wait here until we return. Chan said nothing about the pair who had gone through the inner archway with the basket. Biff followed the bland merchant through a room equipped with a long row of vacant desks, like an old-fashioned counting-house. Our clerks work here, explained Chan, but they've all gone out to lunch, so no one will know of your visit. 
Whether that was good or bad, Biff wasn't sure. He felt a nervous tingling that seemed an instinctive warning of some close danger, yet it might be that all these precautions were for his benefit. This seemed doubly so when they reached Chan's quiet private office at the rear of the long counting room. There the merchant closed the door, gestured Biff to a chair, and opened a small safe that was cunningly concealed in the elaborately carved woodwork of the wall. You received your father's message, commented Mr. Chan, and now I have something for you to take to him. This. Biff gasped at the object Mr. Chan placed on the table before him. There, in a small case, lined with white velvet, gleamed the largest and most magnificent gem that Biff had ever seen. It was a blood-red ruby, with a touch of purple that gave it a glow like living fire even in the subdued light of the office. In his study of mineralogy, Biff had viewed many fine stones, but never one that even approached this ruby. A pad maraga, Mr. Chan said, a true Brahim ruby, not to be confused with those of lesser caste. Whoever carries such a gem as this one can live in perfect safety in the midst of many enemies, totally without fear. At first Biff thought that Mr. Chan was simply repeating some Hindu legend concerning rubies, but he soon saw that the merchant's steady smile had become very serious. For this I can vouch, Mr. Chan continued, the light of the Lama, as this ruby is known, brought good fortune to the descendants of the Raja who originally owned it. While I have been its custodian, I too have prospered. There has been no trouble here, despite riots and disturbances in other parts of Calcutta. In fact, throughout India. Mr. Chan picked up the squarest jewel case and decided to place it in a chamois bag, as he added, And now good fortune goes with you. They say that even the power of invisibility is granted to those who hold this gem. Perhaps that is why danger has passed me by. But in that case, Biff asked frankly, why are you giving it to me? Shouldn't you keep it for yourself? It is my duty to pass it along, replied Mr. Chan solemnly. And besides, I have noticed that the light is losing some of its fire, which is a bad sign. See for yourself. He moved the ruby closer to Biff, who saw now that the gem was in a simple golden setting. But more important, just as Mr. Chan said, its sparkle had dwindled. Then, as Biff held the jewel, its wine-red depths kindled with new flame, so suddenly that Biff caught his breath. "'A good sign!' exclaimed Mr. Chan, closing the little case and thrusting it into the bag. "'That proves it is in the hands where it belongs.' He pressed it into Biff's hands as he spoke. "'So guard it well!' He paused, and his fixed smile became whimsical for once. Or, I should say, it will guard you well. We have just seen proof of that. Evidently, Mr. Chan referred to the ruby's sudden glow, which was quite puzzling to Biff. But something else puzzled him still more. Why must I take this ruby to my father? He will tell you when you see him, replied Mr. Chan. The less I say, the better. 
now that I no longer have the ruby to protect me. And where will I find my father now? In New Delhi. Go there, but do not contact his company except to ask for him by telephone. If he is not there, go to the United States Embassy, but be careful even then, as spies are watching everywhere. Trust only your father's voice as you did when you received the tape message that I sent you. Biff nodded, recognizing the wisdom of all that. Then thoughtfully he remarked, In that message my father said I would meet a man that he and I could both trust. I am sure he meant you, Mr. Chan. If the merchant had beamed at the compliment, Biff might have been suspicious, for he still felt the odd sensation of some impending danger. But Mr. Chan was modest. You can trust me, he said simply, but your father meant another man, Barma Shah. He was the contact who brought us together. I had hoped that he would be here to meet you and go with you now, but he is probably being watched. By the same spies you mentioned, Mr. Chan, Biff inquired. Yes, Barma Shah told me he would stay away if danger threatened here. That was a month ago, and shortly afterward, new riots broke out in Calcutta. Some were rather close by, the nearest that they have been. Naturally, Barma Shah did not come that day. He has stayed away since, and wisely, so I sent word to you myself, as was arranged for such a situation. Above Mr. Chan's quiet voice, Biff thought he heard a rising murmur, much like the approach of the tidal bore along the Hooli. Whether or not it was his imagination, he felt more close in than ever. The day of the riots, Mr. Chand went on, I looked at the light of the Lama and saw it had clouded. I was afraid, not for myself, but for Barma Shah. I was glad when he did not come here. The murmur was louder now, no longer like wave beats, but more like a human babble, with occasional muffled shouts. Mr. Chan heard them too, for he raised his hand and exclaimed, Listen! Time to the action came a sudden pounding at the office door and the excited voice of Matthew, the watchman. Master, there is danger! Another riot has started, outside our very gate! As Chand unlocked the office door and opened it, the babble rose to a bedlam of howls, shrieks, and the clang of metal as the mob battered at the big gate. At Chan's mention of the ruby, Biff had thrust his hand into his pocket to see if he still had the chamois bag that he had placed there. It was safe, and as Biff clenched it tensely, his palm seemed to burn as though the gem were actually glowing through its wrappings. There was a huge crash as the metal gate collapsed, and now, through the barred windows of the counting-room, Biff could see the milling figures of the native rioters as they flooded the courtyard, swinging clubs, slashing with knives, and hurling rocks at one another. Some of those missiles smashed the glass in the barred windows, adding to the crowd's glee, for they were eager to destroy property along with lives. Mr. Chan showed surprising speed as he whisked Biff back into the little office and through a door in the opposite wall, at the same time saying excitedly, Go through the go-down. It's your only way. Biff thought go-down meant some steps, but instead Mr. Chand was referring to the storeroom. 
As Biff started off among the crates, there was another clang from the courtyard where the rioters were smashing at the inner gate leading into the storage room itself. Not that way, called Mr. Chan. At the back you will find another Darwaza, another gate. Turn left on the back street until you reach the Chowk, the marketplace. You will be safe there. Mr. Chan turned back into his office to help Nathu try to stem the attack, and Biff shoved his way among the crates, clambering over boxes until he reached the rear exit that Mr. Chan had mentioned, but too late. Already the back street teemed with rioters. Leering faces turned Biff's way, and eager fingers pointed at him through the bars of the rear gate. Then hands were bashing the gate itself as others threw stones through the grillwork. Biff dodged back among the crates, realising hopelessly that he was caught between two fires. A great crash told that the gate from the courtyard had given way, and an echoing clang from the other direction signified that the rear gate had met the same fate. What Biff's own fate would be, the next few moments would tell. Grimly, he found himself gripping the chamois bag in his pocket, wondering if the light of the llama could save him now. As if in answer, something plucked his shoulder, and Biff turned quickly, bringing both fists up to fight off the first of a hundred enemies. Instead, he found himself looking into the face of Chandra, the Indian boy who had vanished from the basket back at the new India bazaar. Above the babble of the rioters came Chandra's words. Quick, come with me, this way. End of chapter 3 Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London.